Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. Around 8 a.m. on April 14, 1943, Commander Edwin T. Layton, the Fleet Intelligence Officer at Pearl Harbor, arrived at the office of Admiral Chester Nimitz. His arrival was routine. Each day he briefed the Admiral on intelligence matters. This day was somewhat different, however. Within his possession was the translated text of an intercepted Japanese message. It was perishable, time-sensitive intelligence. After greeting the Admiral, Commander Layton took a seat and passed the message to Nimitz. The message indicated that Japanese Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, Commander-in-Chief of the Japanese Combined Fleet, was soon going to be traveling, for the first time, into a combat zone where American planes might be able to target him. Aside from being an important commander, Yamamoto was Japan's greatest naval strategist at the time, as well as the architect of the Pearl Harbor attack. American Signals Intelligence had intercepted a detailed hour-by-hour itinerary of a trip he was making through the South Pacific that would take him near the Solomon Islands. They also had a list of the types of planes that would be accompanying Yamamoto's plane for each leg of the trip. According to the itinerary, Yamamoto was to start this trip in four days. Nimitz immediately understood the opportunity presented by this intelligence. Smiling at Commander Layton, Nimitz asked, What do you say? Do we try to get him? Nimitz and Leighton talked briefly about the consequences. Nimitz certainly wanted to eliminate Yamamoto, but was concerned. What advantage would this bring, and who would fill the void created by Yamamoto's death? Leighton, who had served in Japan prior to the war, laid out a clear case. Yamamoto thought in bold, strategic terms, and was incredibly popular, almost to the point of rivaling the emperor. He was the poster child of the Japanese victories at Wake, the Dutch East Indies, and Burma. His trip to the Solomons in New Guinea would boost the morale of Japanese troops in those areas. But his death, argued Leighton, would not just hurt the morale of the Japanese military, but it would cause a tremendous shock to the Japanese people. But, asked Nimitz, would he be replaced by an even more effective commander? Leighton gave the Admiral a brief overview of the several four-star admirals that U.S. intelligence thought would be likely replacements for Yamamoto. Leighton concluded that none matched the genius or the popularity of Yamamoto. Nimitz thought targeting Yamamoto would be good for U.S. morale, but was still undecided. What if the Japanese embarked on a course of revenge and started targeting U.S. commanders or carried out strikes on other targets? Leighton had an answer for this, too. He responded, They're scraping the bottom of the barrel for fighter pilots and all air group people. We've got them reacting to our attacks now. I can't see them putting on any new offensives. Nimitz had one final concern. Would targeting Yamamoto's plane reveal that the Americans had broken Japanese codes and thereby set back years of code breaking when new Japanese codes emerged? Leighton believed it would not, but suggested giving all personnel involved in the attempt on Yamamoto's life a cover story that would make the operation seem like chance. 
Nimitz was now satisfied. He wrote out orders to Admiral Bullhalsey and included Yamamoto's detailed itinerary. He explained, If forces under your command have capability to intercept and shoot down Yamamoto and staff, you are hereby authorized to initiate preliminary planning. That evening, Nimitz received a reply from Halsey's XO. Halsey was in Australia for a few days, but his XO had determined that an operation to take out Yamamoto was possible. P-38s from Guadalcanal would be tasked with the mission. Nimitz had made his decision, but Washington would also have a say. Presumably, President Roosevelt was informed of the mission and gave his agreement, although there was no record of him approving or speaking about such a mission. As Nimitz had been, Washington was worried about who would replace Yamamoto, and also about the legality of assassinating an enemy leader. Frank Knox, the Secretary of the Navy, was ultimately persuaded that no one could replace Yamamoto and that there were hundreds of historical precedents for assassinating enemy military leaders. Washington was decided. The mission would go forward. Orders affirming this were sent to Halsey's headquarters. Nimitz also sent a personal note to Halsey, Good luck and good hunting. Back in the South Pacific on April 16th, Halsey sent a message to Rear Admiral Mark Mitcher, the relatively new air commander in the Solomon Islands. Halsey's message read, It appears the peacock will be on time. Fan his tail. With about a day and a half to plan the mission, Mitcher and his staff began discussing routes, the interception, the weather, and many other technical details. Yamamoto's itinerary was plotted on a large map. American pilots would have to fly in an arc to avoid being spotted by coast watchers and enemy radar stations that were between Guadalcanal and Bougainville. There was also another consideration. As Yamamoto's plane approached certain airfields, it would likely be met by an escort of Japanese fighters. This period of time would not be ideal for the American fighter planes to strike. The planners considered shooting Yamamoto down over water, but it was agreed, though, that this might increase the Admiral's chance of survival. There was no reliable intelligence on the swimming capability of Yamamoto, so it was vital that he be shot down over land, and preferably far enough away from a Japanese airbase to prevent additional escorts or an early rescue from complicating matters. After considerable debate, Mitcher asked Major John Mitchell of the 339th Squadron, the unit that would carry out the mission, for his opinion. Mitchell's inclusion in the meeting was slightly unorthodox. It was rare for a major, even if he was a squadron commander, to join senior officers in any type of planning. Typically, Mitchell received his orders after such a meeting. Here, however, he was faced with much of the senior leadership on Guadalcanal. As he looked over the map of Yamamoto's itinerary, he eventually selected an area west of Kahili. The P-38s would shoot down Yamamoto's plane ten minutes before it came in for a landing. Over the next day, Mitchell and his squadron went over maps, timetables, and everything else they could think of. Altitude and flight path were calculated to the minute to ensure the planes could carry enough fuel to complete the mission. It was also determined that the mission would be undertaken with radio silence to avoid alerting the Japanese. Given the difficulties of the mission, the crews were advised that some would likely have to ditch their aircraft during the mission if they ran out of fuel. It seemed like an impossible mission. They were to make contact with Yamamoto's plane after a 650-mile trek, hiding from the enemy all the way. Assuming Yamamoto kept to a rigid schedule, they would have a five-minute window to locate and shoot down his plane. 
A single degree error en route could cost them miles and minutes they could not afford to lose. And there was always the possibility that weather or some other incident could delay Yamamoto's travel. The pilots were also briefed on their cover story. Instead of an intelligence intercept, they were told they were acting on the reports of a coast watcher who had seen a high ranking Japanese officer get into a bomber at Rabaul. If anyone asked what they were doing or why they went on the mission in the future, this was the story. It was all about luck and timing. It had nothing to do with code breaking. The next morning at 7 10 a.m., 18 P 38s took off. Four of the planes were designated the killer unit, tasked with shooting Yamamoto's plane down. The rest were the cover element. The cover planes would fly at a higher altitude and respond to anticipated attacks by Japanese Zeros during the actual strike. During takeoff, however, one of the killer planes blew a tire and was unable to get airborne. Another killer plane had trouble with its drop tanks right after takeoff and could not get fuel. Both planes were scrapped from the mission. This left just two of the killer planes out of the original four. In flight, two of the cover pilots were instructed to join the killer planes. This would mean two fewer cover planes to protect the killer planes during the mission. This was not an auspicious start to the mission, but what the pilots didn't know was that Yamamoto was keeping to his schedule despite objections by Japanese commanders who feared that this was the most dangerous leg of his trip. Yamamoto's bomber took off as scheduled from Rabaul. The only concession he made was to change into fatigues. The officers around him, worried about his safety, had pleaded with him to change out of his customary dress whites. He did so, but he kept his white gloves and his sword. Then he and his staff quickly boarded the two bombers waiting for them. The bombers were capable of traveling 2,300 miles, a feat so incredible at the time that the first American pilots who encountered this type of bomber assumed they were from a Japanese aircraft carrier. The bombers, however, sacrificed armor for distance. This made them vulnerable. As the bombers took off from Rabaul, they were joined by six Japanese Zeros to make it a party of eight aircraft. It was to be a 315 mile trip. Unknowingly, Yamamoto was right on target to be intercepted. Meanwhile, the pilots of the P 38s were drenched in sweat. The fighter planes had been designed for high altitude. At such low altitude and with big cockpit windows, the pilots were being baked in a virtual oven. Nevertheless, navigating very carefully, they were making progress. Scheduled to arrive in the intercept zone around 9 35 a.m., the P 38s arrived at low altitude at 9 34 a.m., one minute early. Just as they did so, Yamamoto's aircraft came into view. Spotting the flight, Mitchell ordered the killer group to attack. This group was now made up of Captain Thomas Lanfear, First Lieutenant Rex Barber, Lieutenant Besby Holmes, and Lieutenant Raymond Hine. As planned, the killer squadron jettisoned their auxiliary fuel tanks and began a climb to intercept the Japanese planes. Lieutenant Holmes was unable to jettison his auxiliary tanks and turned back out to sea, followed by his wingmen. As Lanfear and Barber climbed, Japanese Zeros, spotting them, dove to attack. Lanfear turned to meet the oncoming Zeros, while Barber banked right and came in behind the bombers. Unaware which bomber carried Yamamoto, Barber aimed at one and fired. He hit it several times, causing it to bank violently to the left. As it did so, he narrowly avoided crashing into it and barely had time to watch it crash into the jungle below. 
Barber then turned to focus on the second bomber. He found it over the water being attacked by Holmes and Hines. Hit a number of times, the bomber crashed into the water. At this point, the attack group was swarmed by Zeros, but were soon assisted by Mitchell and the rest of the cover group. Lieutenant Hines' plane was shot down in this action. With fuel levels dangerously low, Mitchell ordered the 339th to break off contact with the enemy and return to Guadalcanal. On the journey back, Lieutenant Holmes ran out of fuel and was forced to put his plane down in the Russell Islands. Lieutenant Hines was later designated killed in action, and Holmes would later be rescued. With these two exceptions, the members of the team responsible for Operation Vengeance made it back to Guadalcanal safely. After their arrival and debriefing, Mitcher's headquarters sent the following dispatch to Admiral Halsey. Pop goes the weasel. P-38s led by Major John W. Mitchell, U.S. Army, visited Kahili area around 0930. Shot down two bombers escorted by Zeros flying close formation. One shot down believed to be test flight. Three Zeros added to the score some total six. One P-38 failed return. April 18th seems to be our day. April 18th held special significance for the commanders because it was the anniversary of the Doolittle Raid. The next day, to make sure the Japanese had no suspicions about why an American squadron was in the area, eight P-38s were sent to Kahili with the order to be seen by the Japanese, but to avoid fighting if possible. Their flight was to make it appear that American planes routinely patrolled that area, which would make the action of the day before appear a matter of luck. In the days that followed, it became clear that the mission was a success. Both Japanese bombers had been shot down. Nineteen aboard, including Yamamoto, had been killed. Yamamoto had been aboard the first bomber that was shot down. Japanese troops recovered his body near the crash site. He had been thrown clear of the wreckage and was found clutching his sword. His body was not as charred as those of the other passengers, but he had been clearly struck twice by bullets or debris during the fighting in the air. His body was identified by Captain Yasuji Watanabe, who was overcome with grief and had been harboring a hope that the Admiral had survived. When Yamamoto's remains were transferred aboard a Japanese patrol boat, there was speculation among the sailors that he had crawled from the wreck and used his sword to commit suicide. Word reached Japan's naval command on April 20th, but it remained a closely guarded secret for a time. Even Yamamoto's family was not told of his death. Yamamoto's chosen successor, Admiral Koga, is said to have remarked, There is only one Yamamoto, and no one is able to replace him. His loss is an unsupportable blow to us. On April 21st, the Japanese people were informed of Yamamoto's death, and days later his ashes were returned to Japan aboard the battleship Mushashi. An estimated one million people lined the train tracks to watch Yamamoto's remains pass by en route to Tokyo. A million more turned out for his funeral. Without Yamamoto, the Japanese military lost one of their greatest planners and leaders. It is hard to quantify what his removal from the war really meant, however. Historians today are divided over the outcome. For some, his demise meant a shorter war and an easier drive through the Pacific. For others, his loss potentially meant a longer war, as he may have been one of the only men capable of exerting a moderating influence on the Japanese leadership. This, they argue, may have led to a negotiated peace. There is no doubt, however, that his loss was felt acutely by the Japanese military and by Japanese civilians. Thank you for listening.
If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.